Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, general partner at Kindred Capital. Here with me today is Hugo Renodin, co-founder and CEO of Pools. This is his third business, and he sold a prior business for $250 million. He also completed the largest ICO in France. But these are just the headlines. Listen to the real story on Founders Uncut. It was a year into his first business when Hugo got a strange phone call from his dev team in Bordeaux. Okay, so to give you a little bit of context, my first business, I started when I was very green. I was 23 years old and it was a big success. Like we, you know, we were in the 2017 bubble of ICOs and things like that. And we, we did the biggest ICO in France. And so we had a lot of money and created a big team. And we grew very quickly, maybe too quickly, you know. And I was leading the business and we had like 50 employees at the time. And like after a year, things started to be a little bit rocky and we had to let go one of our co-founders. And so it was a little bit of a special ambiance, to say the least. And so the business was in the US and we had a big dev team in France that was recruited by my former partner, my former co-founder that we had to let go. And one day, I think it's a Thursday or something like that, I get a call from like my CTO. That tells me that basically things are not working and the dev team is not happy. So I'm like, okay, like there's kind of an issue right now. So I take the first flight to France, go to Bordeaux. At what scale of not happy are we talking about? Like not happy, like we're going to quit the company or not happy, like we need you to change some things or like what scale of unhappy are we talking about? Not happy, like we're going to leave the project. So it was like very, very serious. It's like, yeah, we cannot work like that. We're not going to continue like that. So that was like a big problem. Like I could sense it, you know. And so I, I fly to Bordeaux and I go there like the next day arrive, I'm completely jet lagged and we go to the office and we didn't know each other very well, you know, because like the dev team again was recruited by my former co-founder and my former co-founder and I, we didn't really get along and he didn't like the fact that I was too young and green and, you know, like it was like kind of a a shock of culture. And so I arrive at the Bordeaux office and I have like 15 guys on the dev team in front of me in the table, a round table. I'm like one end of the table and I have like 15 people in front of me. And like, I start, I think it lasts like three or four hours. Like it was painful, like all the problems. And all the situations that we needed to solve. And I thought it's the end of my business right now because it's a tech company. If I don't have a dev team, we're not going to go anywhere far. And I was like starting to doubt myself as an entrepreneur, you know, like, okay, like if I cannot make people happy and make people want to work with me on a project, like where are we going to go? And basically after three or four hours, I think we solved like most of the problem. And actually the context was very bad, you know, like because of, of my former co-founder. And also a lot of miscommunication. We didn't really know each other. We didn't really know how to communicate. And we had to get to know each other, I guess. And after those four hours, things were solved. I went back to New York. Things went well. We saw the company successfully. And and this core dev team, we've been working on two other companies. And now we trust each other 100%. So like it was a, I don't think we would trust each other so much today if we hadn't had this episode. So that was a good thing in hindsight. But going there and, and facing people that were almost twice my age and doubting my, my capacity as an entrepreneur, that was like quite challenging, but it was, you know, in hindsight, it was fun. Yeah. It's interesting. I always think that regardless of what industry you're building in, whether you're in crypto or you're in consumer, at the end of the day, your job is to create an environment where great people thrive and want to stay with you and work together. Right. So you've maintained that team across three companies. Now they were ready to walk at one point. What is your advice? You know, how do you create the environment that keeps people together and keeps the trust going and keeps the communication going well? I think it's all about trusting people and empowering them. I know it sounds a little bit cliche, but if you create an environment where people can 
make decisions, own decisions, and and actually be like entrepreneurs. You know, I think that's the best way to do it. I've never had like a, a full time job in a big corporation, so for me it's a bit foreign. But like as entrepreneurs, we all often forget that when you're in a corporation, things are pretty much like very standard. You know, like you have a line of reporting and you have like things that you need to do. You don't have a lot of latitude. And I think giving the space to people is what makes them happy. I think like everyone wants to, to be able to own the decision. They need to be empowered to do so. And if you do that, you have people that are happy, as simple as that. Yeah. And I think also to your point, it's not just about the trust, it's the relationship, right? And it's hard to build those relationships sometimes when you're not in person. I mean, everyone dealt with it in COVID, but when I used to work at GE, I used to run remote teams in India and China. And this was before we had like Zoom video conference. And so you'd be on like a teleconference, just talking to people that you'd never met. And one of my first early leadership mistakes was not realizing to invest in the team, even in that setting, because the truth is, there's a lot of stuff that you take for granted when you're next to someone in person, right? Like the kind of water cooler conversation. But if you and I are in the same place right now, we're like, oh, how was your weekend? What did you do? Like you just have a conversation where you get to know people. And if you don't have that naturally, you have to create that. So how do you think about that now when you build distributed teams and when you have a lot of locations, how do you ensure that you build the relationship where you can empower and trust people? It's funny because like, I agree with you, but like now I think things have changed. You know, I remember when COVID hit, like it was my first company and, and it was so painful to create like a remote culture because we were not used to do that. You know, like we would do like those Zoom happy hour. You stay for one hour. It's the cringest experience. Like you don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. You talk about like the weather. It's like horrible. You know, it's not natural. You just want the hour to end. It's like nobody has fun. You know? I think now the world has learned how to do it. You know, I'm going to tell you one, one thing, which is fun. One of my co-founders, I've never met him personally in the business. We've been running it like for more than a year for pools. And I've never met one of my co-founders, which is one of my closest collaborators. It's crazy. He's in Canada and he cannot travel because his kids are not vaccinated. So like, you know, and I'm in New York. So like, we've never met, but like we have a, a, an amazing relation, like work relationship and friendship as well. So um, to answer your question, I think now people are a bit more used to that, like those kinds of interaction. Now, something that helps might sound small, but like following your coworkers on Instagram, having like this kind of information, which is, you know, when I see their stories, it's the equivalent of the water cooler conversation. You see like what everybody's doing and you kind of comment and it's kind of fun, you know, and we have like those touch points regularly every week. We talk and all that. So we create relationships that are like online relationships, but, you know, at some point they feel like we, we managed to build something which is real. And of course, you know, you cannot change the fact of like meeting people for real and having a drink or having a coffee or like thinking about a problem together on a piece of paper. So one thing that we've done, you know, we started pools completely remotely. Teams were like everywhere around the world. And now we have hubs. You know, we have a hub in France. We have a hub in the East Coast, hub in the West Coast. And at least in, in New York, every week, every Wednesday we meet. And it's not the best office. It, we're not the most efficient. We cannot do like those 10 Zoom calls a, a day. but we get things done, we sit together, and we can solve problems together, we can have coffees together, we can have a drink, lunch together. And that makes a huge difference, for sure. But I think people also like the fact that the four other days of the week, they're free, they can work from wherever they want, if they want to work from home, if they want to work in their pajamas, or whatever that they want to do, if they want to go to the gym at like middle of the day, they can do so. And I think it's a great freedom as well. Yeah, it is great. It's interesting, because I think to your point, the Instagram piece is really interesting thing you said, because it allows you to see them as a more holistic human, right? And so there are other ways to see people as a holistic human than just seeing them face to face. But I also wonder, and maybe you have a solution to this. The one thing that I haven't figured out is you never get lost in a good conversation on Zoom, right? Like, you know, if you're sitting with your best friend over a glass of wine and you just like 
somehow you talk about like whether white chocolate or dark chocolate is better. And you've gone on some tangent into like the deep meaning of life from that, like an hour and a half later. Right. And like, I find that in zoom, because there's always a clock and you always know where you are. You, and also when you're working, you know, there's a clear agenda. You don't really like go onto these tangents that can actually be helpful sometimes. And so I don't know if you found a better way to do that, but do you find that on the Wednesdays you're in person, you have more of those types of conversations where you actually might go deeper on a problem than you would on Zoom? Oh yeah, 100%. But I also think it's a setup, right? It's like a context, you know, for a year, I had like 12 to 15 Zoom calls a day. People say it's like not the best way to do it, but like for me, like I had like 12 to 15 Zoom calls a day. So it was literally my day was in Zooms. It doesn't leave you the time to think, you know, and you, you, still, you need this time to think. And so I started setting myself up for a Zoom conversation where I would, have unbounded conversation, like questions that like I, I would ask questions where I'm not sure about the answer or like, you know, just have this conversation and, and actually like do the thinking in Zoom calls. And it's an interesting exercise, you know, like you have 30 minutes, 45 minutes, one hour, whatever length the Zoom call is. And, and you start a conversation and, and you, you you start a brainstorm. No one is saying anything because everybody like both of the people are scribbling or like trying to think of something. But like it's super interesting because you can actually get this kind of thinking done online. But it's all like you got to prime yourself to it, you know. Because like, otherwise it's like very robotic, you know, oh, did you do that? Yes. Did you do that? You know? Yeah, you're right. It's really about the expectation and how you run the meeting and how you set it. It's funny. There was a, I was talking to another investor a few weeks ago and we both realized he was on the West coast. I was on the East coast and like, it was very late for both of us, I think. And we both realized we were on like the, whatever, I think like 13th for me and eighth for him zoom call of the day or something. And so we're like, you introduce yourself so many times and you say the same thing so many times. So we're like, screw this. We cannot have the same conversation. So like, tell me who you are, but give me all like something you would never share normally from that period. So like, instead of like, I went to college here is like, oh, my sister did this cool thing when I was in college or whatever. Like, and my favorite ice cream flavor is this and like just different things. And it was such a more memorable conversation. And I felt much more connected to him than probably when you have like a normal meet an investor for the first time conversation. And we met in person a few months later, but it was just to your point, I think it's about how you set up the Zoom call. And it's not always about kind of going into the same way of working. It's about how you set it up. Yeah, I agree. And, and I mean, one thing which is good about Zoom calls, it's so much more efficient, you know, like before, you know, you used to go to a meeting, it takes you like half an hour, you go to a meeting, you have to stay an hour because otherwise it's rude, you know, and then you have another half. So like it's two hours of your day, that's less, and you can do four Zoom calls in, into this span of time. So I think we've learned to be efficient. And, and I think that's a great thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So go back to the co-founder for one second. So you didn't meet him in person ever now. And so how did you come across him in the first place? Did you work on a project together? How did you meet? You know, I, I think it's like, it was written. <laughs> no, let's, let's put it like that. So a year and a half ago, I was on my second company. It was going well. You know, we launched our, our DeFi protocol. It was working well. And I was like, okay, DeFi is interesting, but something is missing. You know, I really wanted to work with artists. And I really wanted to create a brand and to create like, a beautiful product and before i was like more into the b2b space and i wanted to get into the consumer space so i really wanted that and i don't have this expertise of design and and i can do product but i'm not a professional product person and so i start thinking about pools and i'm starting to think okay i need a professional product person design person that is going to make a beautiful product i need that and i think it's going to be a, a key piece of what we're building and so I didn't know this kind of person. And so one of our earliest investors said like, oh, look, there's this like freelance platform you should try. Like they're going to help you build this MVP and yada, yada, you know. So I start looking at the freelance platform and they give me like a selection of profiles of product and design people. And first profile, I'm like, oh no, it doesn't look good. Second, that doesn't look good. So I go, I go through like 15, 20 profiles. And it's like, it doesn't look good. And I see this profile. I'm like, 
dude, that's perfect. This guy is perfect. Experience as an entrepreneur, amazing. I was like, I had a great gut feeling, you know, and I work very much on, on gut feelings a lot of time. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not good, but like this time it was good. So we have a conversation. I remember like the first conversation I was in Costa Rica, the network was terrible. So I had like to cut my camera after like two minutes, like weird setting, you know, and we got along and I was like, okay, so this is my thing. You know, like, what do you think? Oh, it's exciting. Let's do an MVP together. And after a month working together, I'm like, okay, do you want to join as a co-founder? Like, what do you think? What do you say? Let's do it. It's like, yeah, okay, let's do it. Perfect. And so ever since then, you know, we've built the company together and, and it's been amazing. You know, I think something which is fun as well. So we have 35 people in the team and you look at the team, it's like half of the team comes from people I know, people I've worked with, you know, it's like my relationships and half of the team comes from his relationships as well, which is very cool, you know, like to see like those teams that used to work together now all, you know, in this big team and it's fun, you know, it's like family. So yeah, it's been amazing since then and it was a chance, randomness, but things work very well. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because there's not enough talk about serendipity, right? In any business podcast, book, whatever, is always like, here's the advice, here's the plan. What you also like, you just have to be open to serendipity in life because a lot of things happen by chance and serendipity. Yeah, I, I think you know, like people mistake what randomness is and chances. You know, people think that chance is a probability, chance is expectation, and like mathematically, there's a big difference. Probability is like you know, if I tell you like let's roll a dice, give me a number between one and six, there's one six of a chance that you get it. But like if we roll the dice six times, you're gonna get it at least once that's the expectation so i think you know serendipity is just a matter of like doing it more and more you know like meeting more and more people and get, having more and more conversation and speaking to more and more investors and more and more people you know like the more you do that the more chance you know or expectation of meeting someone that is great for you like someone that you need to meet is going to increase and so as i think the job of a ceo or the job of an entrepreneur is to create that chance create that spark that meeting that however you want to call it and just be out there and meet as many people as possible because that's how you create serendipity. Yeah, it's how you manifest your own serendipity. That's beautiful. Let's go back to gut. Speaking of things that people misunderstand, it's interesting because gut in theory sounds like this thing that is just totally not, you know, not based on science or data or whatnot. But actually, like we, to some extent, I think gut is a lot around your subconscious, right? The things that you know, and all the data points that you have in your subconscious that are telling you something, but they're not telling it to you in a very linear, conscious, direct way. Um, how do you define your gut? You said you followed your gut a lot before you know, and that can be good and bad. Give us some examples of when it can be good or bad or how you think about it now when you let yourself follow your gut and when you don't. It's interesting. You know, I, I think, you know, like your gut feeling is like a machine learning algorithm. It's like a black box, you know, like those like neural networks, you don't really know what's happening inside input, output, and it learns, you know, but I think your gut feeling is like a machine learning algorithm. Like the more you train it, the more input you give it, the better the output. So I, I think it comes with experience. So, I mean, my gut feeling, it serves me a lot for recruiting. Which again, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not good. But like, I would say 90% of the time it's good. When I meet people, like, you kind of have a sense of like, are they going to be a good fit for this group? Are they going to be like, you know, do they have the right skills, the right attitude? And is it going to be a good mix? So that serves me a lot. Sometimes not again. And then after that, it's like situations, you know, everything is human at the end of the day. You know, we're not robots, you know, like investor relationship, it's human relationship. Like, you know, when you make deals, look, 50% of it at least is like it's human relationships. And again, you know, like the more input you get, the, the better your output. So like the more people you meet, the better, you know, you can understand how they're going to work and if it's going to be a good fit for you or not. So something which is understated is that I think in entrepreneurship is that it's all about the people. Everything is about the people. You know, your investors, like they trust you. 
Like, yes, the idea can be great. The market can be great, you know, but like at the end of the day, they trust you to like manifest the vision and to actually deliver on it. So, and it's the same thing for the team. It's the same thing for creators, you know, so it's all about the people. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's always all about the people and you're going to build something and you're not. So that's something that you've discovered about entrepreneurship over the years. What else have you noticed? Anything now that you've been across three companies that you didn't think at the beginning of the journey that you now think is true or surprised you? Yeah, I think, you know, like one thing which is fun, you know, in a way, again, when I started my first company, I was actually still in college. I was at Columbia, you know, and I had this very linear path all my life, you know, going to the best school and then going to the best, you know, like you know, being number one at class and like all that stuff. In this kind of mental framing, things are pretty much simple. Just have to be the number one and you get whatever you need, you know. But I, in the real life doesn't work like that, you know, especially entrepreneurship. It's not about being like the smartest. It's not about like it helps for sure. It's not about doing things the right way, having the right process. Like it's actually quite scrappy, you know, everything is quite scrappy. It's like you need to find the shortcuts, you need to be like street smart, you know, and the street smartness of entrepreneurship is something that cannot be taught at school. Like, you know, entrepreneurship class, they don't tell you that, you know, about, you know, how you put two like providers in competition or like how you make one investor want to invest in you, like by like creating artificial scarcity, like that, that kind of stuff, you know, the street smartness of it is quite funny to uncover. And, and something else that I've also discovered as an entrepreneur is like the crazier I get, the easier it gets. And <laughs> not in a weird way, not in a bad way, you know, but the bigger the idea, the more bold I am and the better it gets, you know, it's more fun for me. I think people also like that, you know, like again, having like bold, crazy ideas and working on that and participating in that. I think it's just fun and, and it makes things so much easier. So like, don't shy away from big ideas and crazy ideas because that's that's what people actually like and that's what makes you have the best talents to to collaborate with. Yeah, success favors the crazy. <laughs> yeah, um, I like that. You've mentioned earlier about being kind of the youngest one in the room with a lot of people that were older than you. I think that founders find themselves in that spot all the time or very frequently. What is your advice to someone about kind of how you gain the trust and manage employees who are much older than you? It's tricky. I think it all comes from um, experience and you got to prove that you're where you deserve to be, you know, like and at the end of the day, you don't doubt it too much. So my first company, I, I was trying to prove it like being on the grounds everywhere, you know, like being like knowing the most about like legal stuff, knowing the most about tech stuff, knowing the most about products, you know, like really being everywhere and, and be the most educated person on every subject. That's not the right thing to do. I mean, yes, yeah, it's, it's good when you're 23 years old and, and you want to, not impressed, but prove that you're the right person to be at the helm of a company. But it's like you have crazy hours and, and your bandwidth is limited because you, you spend a lot of time proving yourself to like people in your company. So I think that's not the right thing to do, you know. And obviously, like I'm saying that, but now I can do it because I have this track record of like selling two companies and building, you know, successful teams that work together and having the trust as well of my team that I've been working with for the past, you know, five, six years. And so that's easy to say for me. But there's this thing like the imposter syndrome that a lot of people have. And, and I think, you know, if people follow you on, on an idea, on an adventure, you should just assume that they trust you and they, they respect you and they respect your background. So you need to like respect them as well and trust them to do whatever they need to do. So now I've, I've changed a lot. You know, before I was really like trying to be like, you know the most about a lot of things. And now it's more like, okay, you're the CTO, you handle the tech. I'm not going to look at it. You're the CPO, you handle the product. I'm not going to look at it. You know, like it's like trusting people to do their own thing. And now I'm much less in the weeds much more like in the vision and, and much less in the execution. And, and I think that's better because 
people that respect the fact that you trust them. And then after that, they trust you. So it's like a reciprocal kind of relationship. So yeah, I went kind of an, an attention there, but it's a tricky question. No, I agree. I was actually going to say, one of the things you highlighted there is that one way to get respect from people and trust from people is actually to respect them and trust them, right? And I noticed that too. I, I managed a lot of people that were older than me, especially earlier in my career. And I feel like there's this need to prove yourself that you talked about where like, you have to look like you know what's going on. But actually, if you acknowledge that you don't know what's going on, and you trust that they know what's going on, you actually get a lot of respect from them because you know they have their own imposter syndrome and they're trying to prove themselves as well to you and to everybody else. And so I think giving them the space to grow and run and, and trust is, is great advice on managing people that are older than you. So I'm sure a lot of founders will be helpful, <laughs> will be helped by that advice. And let's talk about selling the company a second. You sold one of your companies for $250 million, which not a lot of people have done. Um, but also, you know, a lot of people try to build a, a billion dollar company. How did you think about the sale process? Did you feel like you could take it and make it bigger? Did you feel like it was the right time to sell? How did you think about it? It was a weird time for us. You know, like for me, it was my first company. It was definitely not my dream company. You know, like, I, I mean, I loved it. I loved building it. I loved doing it. I, I was like, it was an industry that I loved, you know, it was a Bitcoin exchange and like, it was so exciting so exciting you know we created it at like during the ico bubble people were talking about bitcoin then after that it was bear market it was like a roller coaster of emotion it was so 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 exciting but at the end of the day it's a bitcoin exchange you know like do i want to spend my time with trader like you know i, I used to do like business trip in chicago to see like the hedge funds that were uh, trading crypto like 24 hours a day super nice people super smart people but at the end of the day like is, is that how i me personally is that how I want to spend my time? The answer is no. But building this business was super interesting because we're participating in a, in a wave of adoption, which you know, for, for Bitcoin, which is changing the world, and, and I think it was great. But it, was it something I wanted to do? I mean, probably not. And I think that changed. You know, that changed a lot. Now I'm much more like, okay, what do I want to do personally? What is like what fits me as a person? What are my interests? What, what like it's very selfish. So it always starts like that, and, and that's kind of about how I started pools. You know, it's like. I really wanted to work with artists, I'm not thinking about creator economy, not thinking about work through. I wanted to work with artists because I was fascinated by like the creative process, you know, and it so happens that web three creator economy merging together is like a very hot topic, you know, right now. So that's, that's kind of like how I, I did it. But like, I don't know, I think it changed a lot between like, yeah, doing things because it makes sense and doing things because you love what you do. You know, it's kind of like to my point of being like the crazier it gets, the easier it gets. You have to be like, very, very extreme about your choices, about what you do, you know, about like doing the things you really love and, and being in the field that you really love, because otherwise you're, it's just going to be like boring for you. So sorry, a bit of a tangent, but <laughs> so the sales process. So it was, it was like, it was not the company of my dream. You know, it's like, it was a company I loved and it was my first company. So it like, it was dear to my heart, but it was not a company that I, that I wanted to grow for four years. So during COVID, you know, things became a bit more difficult, you know, like we, we had a good business, but team was getting a bit tired and, and it was like we didn't manage to get to the next levels so to speak so my head of sales and we're heavily reliant on sales so my head of sales calls me and says like i'm leaving and the whole team leaves with him by the way or the whole sales team leaves with him we have maybe like six months of cash we're burning money because like we're at the stage where we're burning a lot of money to you know to, to build business how am I going to do it? You know, and and very quickly the answer is like, yeah, we need to sell the business because we're not going to raise money, we're not going to do anything. And and I was kind of like 
ready for the next chapter. And so I call my co-founders and I'm like, okay, guys, I think we need to sell. I think, you know, we need to do it, but we need to do it smart. We need to do it the right way, you know? And so we, we, we start speaking to a lot of our partners, to a lot of people and, and comes this company called Voyager and they were kind of small at the time. You know, they were like, they were listed, but like with a small valuation retail broker, they wanted to get into Europe and into the institutional business and kind of like made a lot of sense because we're institutional and we're in Europe. We're the first to be like regulated there. So we start this kind of process with Voyager and with a couple of other um, potential buyers. And it was like very exciting, very funny, you know, like I remember like, I'm not a guy that burns the midnight oil and, and like, you know, do things until 6am. But for, for this, I did it, you know, like doing like sales process, sales pitches, like until, you know, four or five, 6am. And we sold it. And one thing which was very positive, I think for us is that it was not really an equity deal. It was a token deal. And, and I think it was very important because the, our first company was not funded by equity investors. It was funded by people that, that participated in our, in, in our ICO. So our token holders, and we could have sold the equity and made a lot of money for ourselves, you know, the three co-founders, but we decided to really like optimize on the token and, and make sure that token holders would get their fair share, actually like 99% of the value. And, and, and that was very positive. And, and we sold it for you know for a good amount and voyager like really like took off and and, and exploded in the right way and so that was a, a good story yeah it was great for token holders um, there's a lot of token holders that did not make money on their token um which speaking of you did the largest ico in france so tell us about that decision right i mean I, it was a little dicey in the u.s because of regulatory if people should do icos or not how did you think about the decision to do an ico and and how was doing the biggest one in france i think it was a mix of two things you know uh, it was a mix of like okay Let's take advantage of the current context because like a lot of people were raising money with ICOs and, and the context was very favorable. And so, you know, like it was a good opportunity and, you know, we had to seize it. And also it was the only thing we could do, you know, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but like back in 2017, no one would fund crypto businesses. No VC, like very, very few VCs. It was very few. Were I was actually, actually working at one that was investing in, in crypto, but I went there specifically and there was only three in New York at the time. And like, there was very few, very, very few very few you know and like to trust like a 23 year old guy that says like i'm gonna build like an institutional crypto exchange but i've never worked in a bank before i don't know like have no network but i'm gonna find you know, those people like you gotta be crazy to fund like this kind of company so it was the only thing we could do and and, and i think we were we didn't really know it but the key into our iso process was building a community so one thing that we did very well is that we hired a lot of, like before the ico we hired a lot of i remember like students from you know, in New York, a student from Brazil, from South Korea, from Russia, from UK, from, you know, everywhere. And they were like building local communities. They were talking about LGO, they were talking about like our vision about a white paper, like what we we're going to do. And, you know, like it was like, um, we had like 30,000 people in our Discord. Like it was a big community, you know, at the time. And the day of the ICO comes and we knew it was going to be a success because we had done like kind of a pre sale and it was successful already. And we had like, you know, a good amount of money. Day of the ICO, I remember that, like, I remember it very, very crisp, crispy. First of February, 2018, I go to the office, it's 5.30 because we opened the ICO at 6 because we had a lot of people in Asia. We opened the ICO at 6 and we had like this kind of little dashboard where we see like e email addresses and amount invested. And we see like all those neighbor.com addresses. So South Korea, neighbor is the neighbor is like the biggest like, you know, email provider in South Korea. One hour raised $10 million in one hour. Wow. And we're like, Holy shit, no, what, what is going on here? <laughs> and after 10 hours, we raised like something like more than $20 million. 
And I remember I, I was still at Columbia and I had to, to, to stay at Columbia because my visa depended on my graduate degree. And at 6 p.m., I'm like, shit, I need to go to class. But I, <laughs> I just raised $20 million. Oh so, my God. So that's I didn't go crazy. to class. That day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was fun. But it, it was. Oh my God. It, so you went to class even though you No, I, I didn't go. I didn't go that night. I didn't go. But you, you know, like, it's funny. Like, yes, it was great, but more money, more problems. Totally. It's, it's, it's Biggie Smalls. It, like, it's like, you know, like, that's where, like, we had all these problems. Like, we started, like, hiring way too much. We, we had co-founders that were in it just for the money. So it was, like, a year of fixing the problems that we had because we had too much money. So I, I think, you know, like, sometimes it's better to stay humble, to stay nimble, to have, like, a little bit of money, build your thing, have more, like, raise more money build a bigger thing and, and be more iterative. But yeah, it was like a, it was a crazy experience. It was, it was very fun. Yeah. It's also funny. Cause like the people who invest in tokens, which is great. Cause it's your community, which is your people to your point, which is number one, but at the same time, they're not used to investing. Right. So like you're not a professional investor, so you don't know what happens when things don't go well and you need to do a down round. And there's a, and to your point, there is a right amount of money to raise. And if you have more than that, it can be really painful for companies. Um, yeah. Interesting. And you've mentioned building in the DeFi space without any kind of institutional background yourself. What do you think of the current state of DeFi? I usually don't talk industry on this podcast, usually more about building businesses, but as a crypto web three investor as well, it's funny because a lot of what's, we talked about this, but a lot of what's being called DeFi right now is not decentralized. So pick your philosophical point of view, but at, quite frankly, it's not. So stop calling it that one way or the other. But what do you think of the current state of DeFi? What do you think is interesting? I think right now it's still at the state of like, I mean, no, no. It, I, I was about to say it's still at the state of promise, but it's not true. Like, there's product and there's like actually a big amount of money that is being transacted through to DeFi. But where the the very early stages, you know, I, I think the, I mean, it's a beautiful promise. You know, that the promise of DeFi of being able to transact with a smart contract in a trustless manner. You don't need to trust any institution, and you can like buy anything you want. You can borrow money. You can lend money. You can do all the things you do with banks, but you can do it autonomously on the blockchain on a system that is independent and self-sufficient in a way. I think it's a beautiful promise. I think centralization is a necessary evil. Like building something decentralized from scratch is like extremely difficult. Like not a lot of people have managed to do it. You need like this element of centralization because you need to take decisions. You need, in French, we say the, the despot éclairé, the um, enlightened dictator. You know, like you need the person that is going to, single-handedly like take the decisions and give the di direction to the business but enlighten you know with the, the the right feedback and the right information you need that because otherwise it takes too long to build and you know like i think that's the stage we're at you know we're still like building those things and teams are still centralized because we need to build a value prop and then after that i think we'll get to the to a more decentralized ecosystem that's a goal yeah, I think that it really depends on what you're building, right? I think there are some things you can build that can actually truly be decentralized, but I think it's also a myth that decentralization is always better. It's a, in some cases, decentralized databases are just less efficient than centralized data databases, but it depends on what is being controlled by that centralized party, right? And so um, I do think there's a lot of stuff where regulatory-wise and fiat and government-wise, you will have to have centralization, but it really depends on what you're building. So I think we'll get this kind of regulated world where there will be a lot of necessary evil centralization and there'll be an unregulated world which i think will quite frankly have a lot of decentralization but it, it goes back to like when do you need decentralization and what do you drive with it but i think the challenge is knowing who the enlightened dictators are is a different challenge um you've built teams in europe and the us right and you're living in new york but you're also french and you've experienced both what do you think are the main differences between the ecosystems either entrepreneurship wise or just culturally 
building in Europe versus the US? Very different cultures. I mean, you know, I think it's not very politically correct in France to say that, but I think the best, if you're French and if you have like the opportunity to go into the US and build business in the US, you go to the US because like that's the biggest market. That's where you have the most funding. As an entrepreneur, you're more respected as well, you know, like as, especially as a young entrepreneur, like, you know, so I, I think, you know, the US is still like the golden land to build, like to build businesses. It, it's competitive. There's a lot of people, but still, you know, it, it's still the, the land to, be, to build business. But at the same time, France is a beautiful country in the sense that there's um, a, an amazing education system. People going from the best school, they're super smart. And, and especially in, in the tech world and, in, you know, like math is the uh, number one thing in France. You know, if you're good at math, you can do anything. And so like um, for for technical profiles and technical talents, you know, I think France is an amazing country. And so it's funny to like balance both, right? Because when I speak with my French teams and, and when I'm being French, you know, like I think very pragmatically, okay, like one plus one equal two, you know, like what is like the equation? What is the mental setup? You know, what is the model? You know, like, and you, you try to have all the answers, which is great because you build things that are complete and are very logical. And when I'm in the U.S. and I speak like with my more U.S. Uh, person, it's less about how you build it. It's more about how you sell it. You know, it's much more pragmatic. You know, your thing is great. It works very well, but you have users. Okay. Do you have investors? Do you have like, do you have people that actually like, care about what you're doing? And I think that's amazing. You know, having both like building a beautiful product with like, a very Cartesian, very logical perspective, and also like have this street smartness, this thing about like, okay, but yes, it's great, but like, let's get users, let's sell it, let's actually put it out in the world, you know, like that's necessary. And, you know, you don't necessarily like growing up in France, you don't know how to sell things, you know, like it's like business schools that don't retail really tell business, you know, like they don't retail really you how to sell things. And like the US is so much more like focused on that, about the user experience, about growing, about getting people. So I think it's a beautiful mix to have both. But it's very different cultures. That's amazing. Well, we're going to run over on time, so I'm going to call it. But I really appreciate you sharing a lot of your thoughts with us today. And last question for you. What's the best and worst part about being a founder? I mean, it's kind of the same. But like I would say, like, there's no difference between my professional work and my personal work. Uh, my, my professional life, sorry, and my personal life, which can be good or which can be bad. When I'm traveling and going to the beach in vacation, I'm thinking about my business. Or, But at the same time, when I'm having a meeting with an artist that I admire, it's work, but it's also cool, you know. <laughs> you know, what I mean, so it's not it's not a job; it's an adventure. It's something that you live like twenty four seven, and so that can be amazing and th that can be like difficult at the same time. So again, to my earlier point, you know, like you really, as an entrepreneur, you really have to choose project that you love and, and in fields that really correspond to you because that's going to stay with you. There's no nine to five; you don't clock out of it. You know, you stay you stay with it, and even when you sleep, you think of it. So it, it has to it has to really correspond to who you are. I'm really glad you came back to that because you said that earlier and I feel like we didn't double down on it, but I think that is such good advice. At the end of the day, if you solve for what you love doing, you're probably going to be really good at it or you're at least going to want to put in the effort to try, right? So I think that's really good advice to anyone out there. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Maya. It was great. If you want to check out more about pools, go to pools.io, which is P00LS.io. If you want more stories like this, go to kindredcapital.vc forward slash founders uncut. As always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not alone and it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thanks for joining us today. And if this story resonated with you, 
Join us for more stories like this on Founders Uncut.